right, most right. heterosexual males uh, tend to have you know issues with lust um, and desires that go beyond their marriage. So we've uh, heard. You know, we've, not me, but I mean, that's right. Yeah. So, Speaking for a friend. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Good. Yeah, doing well, Nick. Thanks. It's a new day, y'all. I got an email from Zoom this morning with some tips for happier meetings. So get ready. <laughs> this is going to be an extra happy episode of Stand Firm. I want to see those Can smiles. Can you put like a dog face on me or something or like a funny nose? Because that would that just that turns everything happier. That's right. It's all about the backgrounds. That's right. All about the Who doesn't love a meeting? Well, Zoom is here to help. Yeah, We're just waiting for our sponsorship dollars to roll in. That's right. So whoever are the, whoever listening to this is part of the uh, the um, you know censorship committee. Like, can you please let them know that we um, would like a sponsor? Thank you. <laughs> we like Oreos, Goldfish, right. all Nabisco products for that matter. No, there's a black unmarked van outside of my house. I don't know what it's there for, but it's uh, it's the guys that drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> Oh, listen, guys, the big news in the ACNA last week was the release of a statement called Sexuality and Identity, a pastoral statement from the College of Bishops. There's a lot in the report, but I think it might be fair to boil it down to two things. First, the bishops wanted to clearly express their pastoral care for any and all Christians who experience same-sex attraction. And second, they asked that Anglicans refrain from using the confusing but popular identifier gay Christian, recommending instead the slightly more cumbersome Christians who experience same-sex attraction, so that it would be clear to everyone that a Christian's identity is found in Christ alone not in the sex of the person to whom they are attracted. Now, the term gay Christian has been defended by some, probably most notably in a movement called Revoice, who desire to remain faithful to the biblical call to reserve sexual intimacy for lifelong heterosexual marriage, but who also want to acknowledge the marginalized community to which they feel they belong. So how do you guys want to begin this conversation? There's a lot we could talk about, identity, the difference if there is one between temptation and sin, the difference again, if there is one between truth telling and pastoral care, the genesis of these community movements and so on. Maybe it's simplest to start with the simplest question. What did you guys think of the statement? I, I thought it was great. I thought it was, I, I was um, surprised to be honest. Like I think Kevin Carlson said this in one of his interviews that typically when Anglicans put out, put out a statement, you have lots of vague nuance and, <laughs> and then toward the end of like a 50 page pay, uh, statement in which all the sides are, are, are laid out, then you have, we will continue to study this matter. Um, but, That's right. No, they set up some sort of um, listening group and a task force. The task force to listen about when the listening group needs to convene another task force. That's yeah, the, no, I mean, that's because you know when the task force is set up, that's that's a life sentence. You're in the, that, right. that task force never ends because you're going on for the rest. And of that's it. when you get the three by five note cards out and people start writing their first impressions, how it makes them feel. It's very it's very scientific. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and very effective. Uh, but these guys, they got they they there was a task force or a committee or whatever it was was. They got together. They met. They did their homework. They presented yeah. their work to the bishops. The bishops did their homework and they put out a statement, which I think uh, puts a definitive halt to the the revoice movement or this even the spiritual friendship movement within Anglican circles, I think. It, it doesn't say you can't dissent from the statement, of course. I think there's one paragraph in the um the, the, in the important paragraph in the bishop's statement says we're not saying you can't disagree with us, but they right. are offering pastoral guidance. And they're doing it without any dissent. There's no dissenting paper. There's no minority opinion. This is this is the opinion of the bishops of the ACNA, which is pretty pretty significant. Yeah, I was very pleased with it, and I am encouraged by it. And as we were talking before we started recording, um, this is this is the type of leadership that I think bishops um, are required to offer uh, to provide. And I think in our it's a high, it's a strength when it works of our episcopal 
Episcopal structure, because there are there are questions on the ground, you know, just like pastoral, um, you know, slogging it out in your lo local parish that uh, we don't want to adjudicate or re-adjudicate in every single parish. And so now, you know, we don't have to, we can all have a, a, a take on this, but there's a statement like here's as your bishop, the way that we think the considered opinion and the authority in the church that we should talk about these issues uh, as a, and it's really not, um, it's really not much more, as I even mentioned in the beginning, than the framing, the language, you know, like the Heideggerian language house of being or whatever, like this is, this doesn't stop the conversation about pastoral care, about ministering to and with and amongst uh, people that are broken in all various ways. It doesn't, it doesn't really approach any of that because it allows for a lot of, a lot of pastoral freedom to walk into the specific situations that we've all been given, but it does frame the language, which I think is an important place to begin because, uh, you know, when we begin to, to commandeer the language or how the language is used, we'll begin to have effects on, on how we understand the entire concept. And I think this is a perfect example. The difference between being called a gay Christian or a Christian who, who experiences same-sex desires is uh, it's the same person being described in essentially two two competing worldviews, yeah. um, two competing understandings of of their fundamental problem, their core identity, and the hope they have in Christ. Yeah, I mean, of course, the folks on the other side of this would say we're, we're trying to redeem that word "gay," so we will take the word "gay" um, and recognize that it, um, yes, has been is associated with a whole host of unredeemed wicked ideas in the world, but we as Christians also recognize, look, this is the the set of fallen desires. Uh, I'm going to put an asterisk around that because I want to come back to that in a minute, but these are the, this is a set of fallen desires that we've been given in God's providence. And so we're going to be living out, we're going to be, we're going to recognize that, own that, and live that out faithfully, not acting on those desires, but still identifying ourselves as having those sin ideas, I, desires that those outside of the, um, of the Christian church have and call themselves gay. Um, and we're going to redeem it by, you know, working with the concept of same-sex friendships and taking sex out of that and, and trying to, to kind of uh, drill down to the need that we all have for intimacy with, with other human beings and, and see if we can kind of redirect limit and redirect our sexual desire into more into a more platonic uh, intimacy with with people of the same sex. We're going to redeem gay culture, you know. So we we I read an article recently about the, you know let's, let's talk about the types of music that gay people listen to, the types of art they 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 love, and and so we as Christians can we have to throw all that over uh, because we're not having sex. We can we can redeem kind of gay art, uh, gay culture. Um, really, I mean, it, it's, I know it's not the same, but for them, the idea is, is a little bit like being gay is like being of a certain ethnicity or a certain race. Right. I, I put an asterisk a minute ago because there's a, there's a division within this community between those like Gary, uh, Gregory Coles, who wrote, um, single gay Christian. He <laughs> argues that yes, the sexual, the sexual, the lust aspect of, our desire is wrong and it's part of the fall. However, there may be, he believes, and I think he argues for it, he didn't say it comes down definitively, definitively for it, but he argues there is a created aspect to homosexual desire. And, and so it's, it's almost like a, the way he was describing it is like a third sex. You have male, you have female, and you have gay. And so long as we can undo the an aspect of that we can go back and live as an ordered being not we don't have to we don't have to say that our gay as the gay aspect of our lives is disordered it's ordered so he's on one side and then uh wes hill is uh he would argue that yes okay the the, the the whatever is associated with our homosexual desire is there's no created aspect to it it's it's part of the fallen it's part of our fallen selves and if there had been no fall we wouldn't have this orientation but that having been said, this is part of God's providential plan for us. And so there is there's value in identifying ourselves with it and and developing, as I mentioned earlier, these kind of intimate friendships with, with one another and striving to to turn our desires into a more productive um, outlet. So uh, uh, 
any questions? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's nothing gay about platonic male friendship, right? We, we three, in fact, are friends and we don't have to look away from a sexual desire for one another, but the term gay, whether it's been co-opted or not, only has meaning if it includes the sexual aspect, because all of the other things, whether it's music or art or friendship or whatever, are things that other non-gay people can and do like and do. They would argue that they have a special ability to form friendships. Maybe ability is the wrong word, but a special maybe gift for same-sex friendships that that non-gay males and females don't have. And Um, Okay, so here's the thing, though. I mean, I I don't think that homosexual desire is the only fallen (laughs) way our sexuality is fallen. I mean, most heterosexual males uh, tend to have, you know, issues with lust um, and desires that go beyond their marriage. So we've Uh, heard. Not me, but me. Speaking for a friend. (laughs) Right. Uh, So, but, I mean, I I mean, I can imagine telling you, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to take the, the fallen aspects of that where I want to actually have sex with other women. I'm going to try and do away with those and just develop really, really deep friendships with, with other women outside my marriage because I'm going to try and redeem that, that desire there. Is that okay with you, honey? Well, I mean, I think you can, you can boil down. Um, I don't want to say the absurdity of it, but, but the, 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 when, you, when you do that, it, it exposes the, the fundamental flaw, which is that we're trying to redeem or, or we're trying to 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 craft an identity around something that the bible has called a uh, a sinful disposition you know i mean it's not like there are some non-sinful dispositions around which you could craft an identity you know you could hope to be um you know loving joyful patient kind good generous self-control faithful you know i mean you could argue that these are these are character traits that you want to celebrate and you want to cultivate and things but there are there are clearly prescribed fallen aspects of our desires, uh, which we were grateful they don't finally condemn us because of God's mercies in Christ. And yet we, we are no way able to, to claim a, um, sort of a neutral, if not even a positive relationship to them. Like there's a mortification of, of sin, as John Owen said, that is absent from people who are trying to, to wonder how their fallenness is, can be, I don't want to say can be redeemed, but it can be, can be become a, a positive um, foundation for their self-conception and their identity. I mean, this is what the bishops talk about. You know, he talks about the difference between the monastic communities all throughout Christian history that had been called together for a singular purpose, you know, that their affinity was in their um, sort of shared commitment to, um, to either producing something or to, you know, prayer or service or whatever the case may be. But these sort of affinity groups based upon on sexual brokenness are it's 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 speaking about your affinity as a person in a way that goes beyond what the bible allows us to do i mean he says um i mean from the statement itself of talking about most of the monastic communities did form um same-sex communities but they did not ever call themselves any name associated with sexual desire furthermore not in in those communities not all in those communities had the same natural sexual attractions i mean this is the this is the fundamental problem as you pointed out nick that that what brings into question sexual identity brings into question just the reality of of single chaste christian people who have not been called or are into um, marriage who are expected to to live a chaste and celibate life uh, whatever it is um, you know whoever they're attracted to it's it's and and so i think that's where this idea of um, even as it's often used, like heroic self-sacrifice, you know, I have many single friends of mine who are in their forties now who are not, who are Christians who are unmarried, who, you know, their, their quote unquote sacrifice, or it's a real sacrifice, but it's no more or less heroic than anyone else's sacrifice. Who's been called to a, to a Christian life. And if the Lord has not provided, or if in this reality of our broken world, it's, it's, it's a cause for lament that you remain single. You know, I have wept with many a person who would love to have been married and has not yet been that way. And yet at no point in that weeping, 
would they have expected me to say, well, you know, this does seem to be a little Herculean after all. So I guess, you know, maybe next weekend you just go, um, you know, here's the Bumble app or whatever, or Tinder. And like, let's just, uh, because who could possibly do this? Because your identity is being thwarted as a real human if you're not able to, to, you know, experience your sexual identity in this way. And I think all of this discussion is rooted all of the error of these discussions is rooted in, I think, the, the point the bishops are trying to clarify. It's not that any of these particular brokennesses are unknown. Any of these people are outside the bounds of redemption. Any of them are more heinous sinners than others. But when we talk about it, we can't, we can't adopt the language of non-Christians talking about sin and redemption. We have to, to stick with the framework. And because in that very language contains the seeds of hope for, for the sinner, you know, the Christian who has same-sex attraction means that there's uh, still hope for redemption. There's a hope for release. You know, there's a hope for healing, however, perhaps unmet this side of heaven. Uh, but they, they will know that there one day will be no more um, sin like this, uh, as opposed to uh, gay Christian sort of imports all of the this world's understanding of human sexuality and tries to baptize it. And I think it's a, it's, it's, you know, I feel for the people and I'm a pastor and I certainly don't want to cause anyone any more pain, but I think the bishops in their wisdom, like a good surgeon realized that you had to cut through some of this, you know, to, that may cause pain, but it was in the service of healing. One of the complicating factors about this discussion, as I hear us using the word identity, which is a natural word to use in a conversation like this, is that I think to a person, all of the revoice and spiritual friendship writers that I've read have always explicitly said that they are not finding their identity in any kind of culture or thing outside of Jesus Christ. Now, in my reading of what they say around those clear statements, it seems to me that they are, in fact, engaged oftentimes in the project of doing the very thing that they have clearly and concisely said that they are not going to do, so that when pushback comes from people like us and in the form of statements like this, they can refer back to their very clear sentence where they said, I am not doing this. So I think it's fair for us to acknowledge that they've I think almost to a person said that they're not doing that. They're not founding their identity on anything but Christ. But in fact, it seems um, to those outside observers that in by all the other things that they often say and do, they are in fact doing just that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's real insightful. Cause I, I've seen that too. The idea that think spending your time developing a way of talking about living out, theologizing about, uh, redeeming culture in all surrounded with your sexual identity. And then yet say, Hey, I'm are your sexual orientation. And then say, Hey, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not actually here grounding my identity in this. It, it kind of rings hollow because that sounds exactly like what, what you're doing. And anyone else not, if you hadn't made that caveat, I would assume that's what you're doing. Um, because I, all the evidence is there. And, and it, you know, when I had, I had this conversation recently with somebody online and they said, well, you know, are, you're, are you just saying that you, you know, are the bishops is telling us, it was, it was very recent because it was after the statement came out. You, know, you identify as things, you identify as an Anglican Christian, a name your adjective, something Christian. Why can't, if it helps us pastorally to identify as gay Christian, why, um, why can't we do it? And I, it's, that's that's not the, identifying as an Anglican Christian. Yep, that's an adjective that describes what type of Christian I am. But to say I'm a gay Christian locates the ads. Uh, I'm sorry, I got to keep going back to it. It it does say they say something about your identity and you rest it in some aspect of a, of your character that's fallen. <laughs> Anglicanism yeah. is not fallen. Um, Even uh, if you did really identify as an Anglican Christian, which I don't suspect that you in fact actually do. Yeah, no, I don't. But I mean, it's it's, it's not a fallen aspect. Right. So uh, so this person said, well, what about what about uh, can you identify as a blind Christian if you're blind? You know, because bl blindness is a fall an aspect of the fall. And it's a damaged aspect of our being, of a person's body because of sin. Uh, not that person's sin individually, but of sin in general. Um, just like our, our 
our sorry our orientation is. Well, there's a there's a difference in that nowhere anywhere in scripture is blindness, even though it's a consequence of the fall, described in morally condemnatory terms. You're, you're, if you're blind, uh, that's just a that's just a this a, a physical malady coming from the fall. However, any kind of sexual deviation or desire for sexual deviation away from the standard of, of uh, heterosexual marriage is always de de described in moral terms. And so you're identifying yourself then with an orientation that is, oh, sorry, I that was identify. I'm gonna use, just use the word identify because I'm, sure. I'm, I, I, I deny their efforts to say they're not identifying themselves. <laughs> um, so you're identifying yourself with a fallen, fallen, uh, orient a fallen aspect of your nature. And I suspect that the three of us, along with, I again, suspect that the bishops who signed this statement would counsel against somebody identifying as a blind Christian too. Like what, wh why are you seeking to ground yourself in anything about you good or bad or indifferent other than this finished work of Jesus Christ given to you outside of anything about you? Yeah. I mean, the, okay. With the response to that, I, I imagine it might be something like, well, okay. I granted maybe the orientation here isn't the same thing as, as being blind, but it's if it's pastorally helpful to ga gain encouragement to be together, uh, okay. struggling with this burden we have, shouldn't we be able to do that? I see. Do you think there's an aspect of this? I mean, I'm just my mind's racing. There were so many things we could talk about with respect to this, but I find it, you know, I keep getting drawn back to the, you know, do you do identify as a lustful Christian, right? And I think, well, I understand what we're saying with that, which is that, you know, that's a sinful desire um, that we wouldn't want to be identified with. I also think that there's a minimization of how painful it would be for me if I actually considered myself like a fundamentally lustful Christian, like, you know, I have lusts and desires and I have sin as much as the next person, perhaps more than many, but I would never at the end of the day, uh, look at my wife or look at my, um, or, or pray that I would remain in this position, you know, that, that you have lusts and that you are that are two different things. And I, I'm just, I'm just reflecting that, that is it possibly part of the case that, you know, there's a, lack of, of, I don't want to say, I don't want to say brokenness because I'm very sensitive to the, to the pathos. I want to be, be sensitive to this, but there's a, there's a discussion of the desires that seem to have been bracketed off of the way that other fallen desires would cause pain in the life of a believer, if that makes sense. You know, like, I mean, none of the things that we're talking about that are fallen desires are things that, that I have any relationship to except for sadness, for, for like, you know, as, as Paul says, like a thorn in the flesh, like a thorns, thorns hurt. And I know that, that that's the way that it's been described amongst the people who are same-sex attracted who are Christians. But I want to say, um, you know, that there's the, the things that are thorns in my flesh, I relate to, I, I would never want to be to be a sin, to be, to be the definitive statement yeah, the of the first of thing that anybody thought about when they think about you. Yeah. Because I would, I, you know, there's a amazing miracle that happens every morning where his mercies are new, you know, and I wake up and I'm like, I've got, I've Not got yet. today, I'm gonna get it. I'm do it today. And then, you know, about, about 30 minutes in, I'm repenting already. Um, but that's part of our even morning prayer service, you know, so it's, but I mean, again, I'm just reflecting, like, I think part of the problem for me I've been for almost 20 years now ever since I read Bishop Spong's book um, about how the church must train change or die is that it seems to be a a victory and however and unwittingly the people that are participating in this victory you know we're all we're all part of the culture that within which we're swimming you know like the David Foster Wallace aphorism about the two fish you know the old fish swims by the other fish and says how enjoy the water and the other young fish looks and says, what's water? You know, I mean, that was when he gave that one, his famous Kenyan college address. So I want to be sensitive because we have all been affected. You know, we have all been saturated by this um, increased sort of pagan sexualized world within which even the concept of being a sexual identity is a function of our normal everyday life. Like that is a reality of us living under judgment, you know, but part of the judgment or part of the victory of the secular culture is that this, this tragic sexualization of love. 
And so even amongst, you know, like in the Episcopal Church's um, uh, liturgy for same-sex weddings, quote-unquote weddings, um, they have the story from David and Jonathan, or Ruth and Naomi as two of the optional readings. And when I read that many years ago, I said, well, goodness gracious, like this, that's the great tragedy, is that you can't read two men loving each other, two women loving each other, and have it be real love, unless it is somehow sexualized. And that is a victory of Freud, and a victory of, uh, you, you know, more than anything else. And I see at the heart of this, this is the tragedy of the Revoice movement, in my opinion, is you have these, this conflicted group of people who, who genuinely want love, and they have, they have decided, rightly so, that they're prescribed from expressing that sexually amongst people for whom they have real desires. No one's questioning that. And so therefore, they have to search for some real love that comes up to the point of being able to be fully expressed because it can't be sexualized. And that is not a, that's not a Christian idea. You know, I mean, I've married people. I have a good friend of mine who, when they got married shortly after their wedding, some 20 years ago now, uh, one of them was diagnosed with basically an inability to have uh, sexual intercourse except through very painful means, um, like excruciatingly painful. And, you know, what is the counsel to them? Well, it's too bad you, you can't really be, you can't really express your love. You know, it's not true love. It's not real love. And that's sort of in the same vein of what we're arguing with spiritual friendship. It's like, nobody told you, you couldn't love deeply another man as much as you've even more so perhaps than you've ever loved another woman. I mean, that's what David said, Jonathan says to David, it's simply prescribing the intimate love that has been reserved simply for male female marriage like but other than that you know have at it and i think that's what's sad for me is we look back at the great loves of history male male love you know even familial father daughter mother son you know and they've all been sexualized or at least called into question in our contemporary culture and i think that what we're seeing in this discussion is a is a result of that confusion and i think the bishops were right to to consider it, to weigh the options, and to reset the conversation around a biblical way of speaking about this as opposed to a, as opposed to a worldly way. That actually brings to mind one of the other things I was wondering about in light of this, and I can't, I can't ascribe this necessarily to everybody who writes for either Revoice or Spiritual Friendship because I haven't read all of it, but I have read some things that try to draw a pretty clear line between temptation and sin to say that desire, even sexual desire for someone of the same sex is not by definition sinful. It's a temptation to act on it is sinful. And I wondered if we might spend a few minutes talking about how it, how, you know, obviously we read about Jesus that he was tempted in every way as we are yet did not sin. Obviously Jesus exists as a, as a unique person in his own category, <laughs> able to resist temptation to sin, whereas it's quite a different story for us fallen human beings. But how, how would we want to talk about the difference, if indeed there is one, between temptation and actual sin? I think, I think uh, there's a dis dis difference between kind of the Reformed Protestant understanding of that and the Roman Catholic one. Yes. It, it's it, back to the heart of the Reformation. This yeah. Is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> It goes to this question of concupiscence and yep. and whether or not concupiscence in itself has the nature of sin um, or not. And the reformers came down on the side that yes, it does. And concupiscence is this kind of underlying lust for anything that God says not to lust after, uh, a desire for anything God says not to lust. And the Roman Catholic Church's idea is: well, if you don't act on it, you don't indulge in indulge in. Don't it. touch. Yeah, yeah. Then that's not sinful. The, the reformers was yeah. Well, it's it's all part and parcel of our common responsibility for the fall. It wasn't just hey, Adam and Eve back then sinned, and uh, if I were there, I wouldn't have. But but they sinned, and now I have this broken heart because of what they did. No, we're all kind of corporately responsible for that, and and the guilt of that and the effect of that is something that that applies to us. We are guilty, even because of the inherent unchosen desires for things that God hasn't given us license for. Um, that's a, that we would, those are things we want to confess, not, yes. not things we want to say, hey, this is, hey, I haven't acted on it, so it's okay. 
Well, yeah, and you know, you just uh, Denny Burke has a good um, uh, teaching on this, which I'm I'm struggling to remember uh, fully at this moment. But but one of the main points he points out between the difference between our temptations and Jesus is that he didn't have a sin nature, like our fallen nature is tempted to sin. You know, Jesus was sinless, and so again, the 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 measure of his temptation and the the strengths of it is what he has shared with us. But it's not the same to say that you know Jesus wasn't walking around uh, the prostitutes um, lusting in his heart. You know, Jesus wasn't dealing with with the sins of pride or or, or any sins at all. But he was tempted um, to reverse the the. Um, um, what is it um, in Philippians? The katalasso, um, uh, the, uh, the his, his emptying of himself. No, that's 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 um, reconciliation. What was it? kenosis? The kenosis. Um, he was he was tempted at every point. Remember by the devil, you know, to to reject his mission, to take back what he had willingly given up for the sake of uh, the good of the love of his father, for the sake of the elect. And so, you know, this idea, I think it's too often bandied about that Jesus and that his temptations were, were qualitatively uh, the same as ours, because then that, then that says that he's walking around, you know, just sort of super self-controlled in a way that, you know, we hope to be, which again is sort of a, an Arian Christ or at least a Pelagian, semi-Pelagian Christ, if not, but certainly not a savior, you know? So I think that's the first place and we could, there's more to be said about that. And, and um, perhaps in another episode, we could dig into that more fully. But I think that this point of concupiscence really is at the heart of it because, you know, you have two things that happened at the time of the Reformation. You had, as Fitz Allison has pointed out in his book, The Rise of Moralism, you had this idea that original sin was only, um, was, was, or, or that the, the sinful state that remained after baptism was, was only uh, really activated when you fully embrace the sin. So what began to happen, even in Anglicanism, was a sort of a prioritization of ignorance. You know, like, how could you judge, you know, the idea was, you know, if I didn't know the speed limit was 55, like, who are you to pull me over, Mr. Officer? You know, and so there began to be, even in the works of like Jeremy Taylor and stuff, I mean, Fitz gets really fired up about this if you talk to him. Um, he starts talking about how the the ideal state is one of ignorance. And so you have these people who would even um, not even want to teach or preach the gospel to certain people in the, in the fear that if they heard it, they they would be judged by it, you know? So that was kind of an outgrowth of the denial of concupiscence on one hand. On the other hand, you had just what you were talking about before, this idea that somehow look but don't touch was the fruit of the gospel. And that cut into Luther's very first of his 95 theses, where he had operated under that idea that do penance was the way that we were made right with God. So if you did something bad, you could pay it back and then the priest could raise it to the level of contrition if you really needed to, so, so, forth, and so on and so forth. But when he wrote the first of the 95 theses that the entire life of the Christian the believer is one of repentance. When our Lord and Jesus Christ says metanoia, repent, you know, well, that changed the entire script because all of a sudden you're like, well, if I, if I'm constantly repenting, that means, that means that I'm constantly in a certain degree in a state of sin, which of course then prompted the famous simulusis et peccator that you were simultaneously justified and safe, which was codified in our article nine, when it says on birth sin, and he talks about how we're all infected. And he says this, and this infection of nature doth remain yea in them that are regenerate, as if you would have to say that, right? Whereby the lust of the flesh called in Greek, the phroneo sarcos, uh, which some do expound the wisdom, some sensuality, some the affection and some desire of the flesh is not subject to the law of God. And although there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized, Romans 8, 1, yet the apostle doth confess that concupiscence and lust hath of itself the nature of sin. And so therefore, you are simply saying, we're our 39 articles, all the bishops are doing is saying, we are not going to allow our sin to be a defining adjective for our Christian life, period. And we get that on good authority. There's there's centuries of debate about this. There's 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 voluminous scriptural warrant, and we love the broken and we welcome the sinner, but we will not speak about um, God's people in ways that God has not given us to speak about. I mean, okay, on a pastoral level, I mean, where you where you might want to make distinctions for people if you're wondering, oh my goodness. You know, where, what is this concupiscence? Where is it? How do I get rid of it? Uh, uh, um, 
Your concupiscence is showing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is better not to actually have the affair. Yes. <laughs> That's better, right. pastorally speaking. Yeah. That's kind of where I was going. Right. Yeah, so I know. Nothing matters. So you might, don't don't go down that road. Hey, I already have this lust, so I might as well go after right. it. How am I going to, how can I be more of an adulterer? Um, but but secondly, there is there is a kind of, we, we are made in God's image. And so there are, while we're falling, there are things we can notice and appreciate without fault, without outside of that concupiscence so i i can theoretically look at a, a beautiful woman and say wow she's beautiful and not the, the concupiscent side would be and i would like to do this with her or i'd, I'd like to I, right. i'm indulging in my look really long time that's where the it, it bleeds over it's really hard to distinguish but not every appreciation of beauty for sure is that has that aspect to it the christian would call that a miracle yeah. that <laughs> That right. one could appreciate the beauty of God's creation and not lust after it. Well, that's not the, that's and, not something that we've accomplished. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. But this in our is lives. the law and gospel. This is why against these things there are no laws, says Paul in Galatians. Right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self control. So when you find yourself, you know, either usually upon retrospect or maybe in the moment, enjoying the gifts of God for the for you know in creation, however it is, whether whatever desire you are currently experiencing is not being tainted by sin that is part of the fruit of the spirit against which there is no law but this is the point i mean i wrote, I wrote a book on some parts of this that when when it, it's impinged when it your your desires in whatever capacity are called into question by the power of the holy spirit through conviction well then that's the law doing its work to to draw you back to repentance this is how this works and so there are many times in life thank god when you're simply enjoying your your relationships you know you're you're not provoking your children to anger you are submitting to to christ as to to your wife you know whatever you're 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 living the christian life and thank god for that and that's when there is no law against any of that like go and be more loving go and be more self-controlled like no one go get on good on you but the law remains because sin remains. And as the sin, you know, as it reveals itself, you know, could be in the same 10 minute, could be in the same 10 second um, interaction. Uh, well, that's when the law comes back in and reveals our continued need for repentance and absolution. And that's, that's the, you know, the, the analogy I was, I came, I used and I wrote about was, you know, the law where there is no sin, there is no law, right? So like in the, there's no, commandment in the desert uh, to drink water, you know, there's no need for that. Like you're, if you're going to be in the desert, you're going to find why you're going to drink it, you know, but there is a commandment to, to not do all the things that you, you, you've been prescribed to do because we have these fallen desires that are going to want to, to engage in them, you know? And so where there's, where, again, we could talk a lot more about this, but I think that concupiscence is really at the heart of, of this entire debate because there are people who say, how could I be judged? And they have said this for centuries, if not millennia, for things that I could not control about myself. And we say, well, you know, the judgment is not specific. Um, you, you know, we're not saying that you have been specifically chosen by God to bear this particular judgment. Although, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to say that he may have something when you get to heaven. But I can say this is that the judgment you are experiencing is part of the general judgment of the world. And it looks different for you than it does for me, but that we are similarly under compulsions and broken desires that we did not choose. And we have very little power over, but for the hope of Christ um, is a place where we can stand together and join, join the church and do the work of the Christian, you know? And so I think that's where, you know, again, we could talk more about it, like this whole idea that somehow sexual sexual chastity is like a uh, like an otherworldly self-denial as opposed to other aspects of self-denial and christian you know mortification of sin um i think it's also a fruit of a modern world that views uh, sex i mean if you go to like a high school kid and say you know if you were unable to have sex the rest of your life tomorrow would you choose that over death you know or something or like would you choose, you know could, could you imagine your life without it like i mean many people would say i have no idea what life would be like if if i were unable to do this like well that's just a, a judgment on where we are and, you know, again, uh, going back to the bishops, they are refusing to allow us to continue and perpetuate that type of language in the church. And for that, I'm very grateful. I was struck when you were talking Rambling. about the common human complaint about how 
how can I be judged for something over which I have no control? And this is why, I mean, it's, it sounds silly to say, thank God he gave us the Bible, but St. Paul addresses this exact question in Romans nine, right? Romans nine, 19. I have it right here. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And St. Paul doesn't actually, you know, answer the question. He says, who are you, oh man, to even question this? Like you, we have a sovereign God and we have a God who finds responsibility in human activity. And this is this is just a truth and sounds bad and hurts, <laughs> but leads, as you mentioned, inexorably to us finding ourselves on our knees in repentance and calling out to the Lord who will deliver me from this body of death. And then we get the answer. Amen. Jesus Christ. Just on, a, on another you know, pastoral note here, the one thing about the, another thing about the Reborn music, uh, music movement that is, I think, dangerous for those involved in it is is either revolving around they're kind of revolving around their temptation they're 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 diving into the realm where that temptation is always very close to them um if i have a parishioner who's really having a hard time i don't know uh, who wants to look at porn uh, you know the best way to you know get away from that is to not you know, not be around other people looking at porn. Right? <laughs> no, don't go to, don't go to, uh, stay away from the atmosphere that's going to, you know, going to lead you further into temptation. Um, and I think that, I think that uh, focusing, if you have homosexual desires, focusing on the homosexual community and on the homosexual culture, it's, it's a little bit like, and I, I know I'm being crass here, but, it, but it's a little bit like, you know, alcoholic walking into a bar and saying, give me a cup, glass, a cup of coffee. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and drink my coffee and watch all these other people drinking, but I, I'm not going to have a drink. Well, you know, if you put yourself in that situation over and over again, and you, and you, you put yourself in that, in that culture, in that atmosphere, you're, you're, why are you, why are you doing that? You're, you're just, you're leading yourself into, you're going to fall. Mm. It's, uh, we're we're getting close to the end of our time. I did want to raise one other thing that I think your pastoral question raises, Matt, the idea that a statement such as this communique that we've gotten from our bishops is framed as a pastoral letter. The idea is that this is written out of a care for people, even though it's telling them not to do something and could be heard in a way, and certainly this is very prevalent in our culture today, although it's not new, that if you are telling me that I'm not allowed to do something or that something I have been doing is not good for me or is maybe even wrong, then you are by definition not loving me. So I wanted to give you all a chance to sort of react to the idea that there might be actual overlap between truth telling and pastoral care, that they might actually be the same thing. It's already out there. I mean, the, the response to this statement is a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth. I mean, there's people who are uh, who have given themselves over to this revoice movement who feel hurt, um, they feel pained, and their response is something like, "Well, the bishops were supposed to issue a pastoral response to this question, and they haven't. They've issued a, a response that hurts me." Um, and you're right. There's this kind of false dichotomy between. I'm hurt and pastoral, whereas, whereas in reality, often the pastoral task requires requires hurting in order to heal, um, bringing the law down in order to to bring someone to repentance. And we should acknowledge, I think, the potential for hypocrisy here. That what I said earlier about the revoice and spiritual friendship writers saying. Clearly, I don't find my identity here. And then by the rest of what they say and write, seem to do that. We would acknowledge the possibility that a communique like this could say, we desire to care for you pastorally here, and then proceed to at least potentially do the exact opposite. I don't actually think that this statement is guilty of that. Um, however, I would just, I think it was worth acknowledging that that's a potential thing that can happen when things are put out into the world by sinful people. 
Well, I totally agree with you, Nick, on that. And I think that, you know, whenever you actually say something, uh, when you land the plane uh, and there's an actual disagreement, then you're always going to run into the possibility and, they, and they, the accusation that you have not been sufficiently, sufficiently nuanced, you haven't listened, you haven't really heard the other side, you haven't. And I think that this is what we're going to see on the other side of this. And yet, I think that the bishops are... Um, are are well within their sort of pastoral rights to sure. to give us some guidance about we ask how them to do exactly this. Yeah, and and I think you know it certainly shouldn't, and I don't expect it to in the conversation amongst and within the ACNA about how to minister to Christians who experience same sex attraction. I mean, this is a pastoral need. If anything, this I hope will further the conversation in a more Christian and and sort of openly or, or sort of non not as confrontational way, because now we have some guidance. So this is how, this is, this is the framework within which we can speak about these things. And let's begin to, to push the ramifications of what this type of language would, would look like within our, the pastoral care of our church, you know, for the sake of the sheep. And that's genuine love, you know? So I thought it particularly was interesting in their statement about uh, emphasizing the confusion that young people have. Well, this is, uh, you know, we will be among the only place in the entire world um, where a same-sex attracted high schooler is going to hear anything about how that's not the defining characteristic of their lives. Um, they're not going to get that from their school, certainly not from the culture of television, from their friends. And so if only to begin the conversation with like our youth ministers about how they minister to and talk about sex and attraction and identity amongst their youth, um, this is a welcomed um, sort of guidance and, and guideline. So I think, you know, this push back um, about about the sort of pastoral sensitivities, you know, for the sake of being pastoral, there have been so many, um, well, let's put it this way. C.S. Lewis said it best, I think, in a recent um, devotion. I do this, I've been reading through a variety of daily devotions, but a year with C.S. Lewis, I think is actually pretty good because um, it's short and it comes to a lot of his major works. But he talks about how what passes for for love in many people's minds or, or kindness passes for love. And what he means by that is that they, we think it's kind to sort of look past the, the brokenness and the failures of people who we only do that with people that we don't actually love. Because he said the type of expectations and hopes for and desires you have for people you actually love far transcend any of the sort of kindness that you extend to people that you don't actually care about. And so I thought that was really insightful. And that goes back to this pastoral care. If you genuinely love someone like Jesus loved them, then you dive into hell with them and get crucified with them alongside with them in the, and, and walk through the ravages of death, sin, death, and the devil in the hopes of bringing them out of that. Like that's what you do if you love them. And so it doesn't mean that you just say they're there, you know, life's, life's difficult for all of us. So you eat, drink tomorrow, you die. You actually, you have passion, you know, you suffer along with them. And so if you had a child with brokenness in this area, or you were a person with brokenness, or you are, you're simply a sinner. We don't say they're there, you know, that's not a big deal. Like as pastors, we say, we call it what it is and we don't leave you there, but we walk with you and through you, uh, through it with you towards the hope set before us in Christ. And I think that's why all of these appeals to you're being mean, you're being un insensitive or, you know, this, this statement hurts me. It's like, well, you know, the law kills, um, but it kills in the service of bringing new life uh, in Christ by faith. And that's, that's what we have here in part with this statement from the bishops. One thing about that I, I, in, in modern or contemporary argument, when a point's made, instead of meeting with a counterpoint, it is, there is often the retreat to, well, that hurt me. And, and then there, then other people who are hurt by it gather, and there's this, this kind of avalanche of pain, which then causes the person who was the offender to have to, you know, just backpedal and say, oh, no, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's done. My hope is, because already that's starting. The, that is starting already within the people who were pushing for the spiritual friendship movement in the ACNA. My hope is the bishops, because this is a pastoral statement and because they love the people they're trying to talk to, um, they won't let themselves be politically outmaneuvered by by that hurt um, and by the by the pain that's going to be expressed. So they don't backpedal and put out another statement. They're, they're walking this back or, or mitigate it in any way. 
Um, so I pray they'll stand firm on this and not not back down. Yeah, and I'll be surprised if they do, only because we've already walked through this. I mean, for a large segment of the of the population of the culture to prohibit intimate expression, however you want to say, whatever the euphemism is between anyone is an act of, um, of uh, unmitigated uh, torture, you know, and of, and of just outright bigotry, hatred, animus, and, and malice and whatever other word you want to use. And so we've, we're already well down that road. Um, And so I'd be surprised, you know, I mean, the idea that we, uh, I mean, the idea that we we prescribe. <laughs> I had a conversation with someone once in Vienna, and they were all fr- uh, fired up about about um, gay about our stance on gay marriage in the church. Uh, you know about how um well we wouldn't do it, and they were just shocked and horrified. You know, how could you possibly not do something like this? I was like, well, let me give you like the historic Christian perspective on sex. It's like you know, uh, no fornication, no masturbation, no lust. Uh, one man, one woman in marriage till death you part. Nothing outside of marriage, and and within it, it's even more combined. I was like, we have a we have a lot of countercultural things we're saying here about sex, and so forgive me if like not marrying a, a, a certain aspect a certain permutation of that is is shocking uh to us because it's just not because that's almost almost the least shocking thing we say about sex and so i think to with respect to this statement the idea that again not the not that i know but i would imagine you know from the apostle paul to augustine to to the great theologians and thinkers um you know in our tradition to the idea that we would we would be debating whether or not we should we should identify celebrate and in some way elevate a clearly prohibited broken aspect of our fallen nature an identifying marker of a christian person is i think would be would would just be a non-starter almost from the very beginning and uh, almost nonsensical to think about and i think again not that that's a judgment on anyone doing it but i think that it's right that the bishops again have spoken in a appropriately countercultural way to reset this the the language reset the conversation and hopefully reset the the direction that we were drifting um, so that we can actually bring the the gospel to bear in all aspects of, of sexual brokenness and, and hopeful freedom. It's no coincidence that we say uh, with St. Paul that we are the chief of sinners. We are as reliant on the grace of Jesus Christ as anyone. We are grateful for our leadership to remind us of that. And we pray for those who are oppressed and we ask um, and remind ourselves of Jesus's sufficiency for us and our identity founded solely on him. That is all the time we're going to have this week. Thank you for listening. If you want to keep the conversation going, I hope you'll be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes and send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. Thanks as always to Matt Kennedy and JD Koch. I'm Nick Lannon. We'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.